Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. On the coronavirus front, there's a lot of concern about these variants that are floating around, especially as we're making a hard push to get as many people vaccinated as we can. One of the big questions with all of this is why are these different strains emerging now? One answer to this is time. The virus has always been mutating since the beginning, and these variants can be a response to increasing herd immunity, response to treatments, and just evolutionary changes due to the time it has been circulating. For more on these COVID variants, we'll speak to Brian Resnick, senior science reporter at Vox. For as long as this pandemic has been going on, the virus has been changing. And every time it gets into a human body, it makes copies of itself. And every time it makes a copy, it can make a copy error. And that's like the source of mutations. That's the source of like how things change. And so, you know, it it does seem a little peculiar that throughout the pandemic, there have been like different variants. There have been different changes in the virus, but they haven't like stood out to scientists until now, they haven't like been associated with, with concerning things. So the things about these variants that are concerning is in the case of that B117, which is the UK variant or sometimes called that, um, that one seems to be more transmissible. Those other ones you mentioned, you know, there are some worries about maybe these variants are getting a little bit better at evading our, our immune systems. Um, but, you know, to answer the question of why now, well, one big answer to that is just like, there's been a lot of time. <laughs> you right. know, we can think about this in, in, in a few ways. Like one, like the, as the virus uh, spreads between person to person, it, it can, it can accumulate more changes through, you know, that natural mutation process. And, you know, if you're looking at a virus that has spread to 90 plus million confirmed cases around the globe, that's a lot of chances to change. Uh, You know, that doesn't explain all of it, but it does explain some of it that, you know, you would expect the diversity, the genetic diversity of the virus, the different forms it could possibly take to increase over time. And one of those things kind of adding on to that, a lot of this has to do with time and the amount of times that the virus has been replicating, but also partial human immunity, right? A lot of people have gotten it. We have the vaccines rolling out now. So that's starting to build up also. So you kind of pressure the virus to make its own changes to keep on living, basically. And that's kind of one of the things that they suspect with the Brazil variant. It might have changed just enough where you could be more susceptible to getting COVID-19 if you've already had it just because of the way it's changed. What we're describing here is evolution and evolution has two components and one is change, one is variation. And so that was, I was just describing, you know, throughout the pandemic, the, the virus has a lot of opportunities to change, but that doesn't explain necessarily why we see some variants more than others. And for that, you know, that's the other half of evolution, which is selection or natural selection, which is that, you know, that now we're operating in an environment where maybe some of these variants have a little bit of an advantage. So I think in particular, this is what the concern is in Brazil, where there have been areas in Brazil that where that there had horrible outbreaks, 
huge proportions of the population were infected. And now there seems to be this new variant that seems to still be infecting people. And, and the idea there is that there's possibly a lot of, of immunity there and that immunity is acting as a selection pressure. So if you're a viral variant that's a little bit better at evading, you know, the immune response that has been generated so far, then maybe you start to like gain a little foothold. You start to outcompete the other variants. And then suddenly, you know, you have a huge portion or huge population of people carrying a variant that looks a little different than the variants that were circulating last year. One of the other interesting parts of this, and, and as we keep mentioning, you know, a lot of this just happens over time and with the virus mutating every single time. But there's some theories as to why these variants might have gotten stronger. And one of them has to do that it might have emerged in an immunocompromised person. So it had some time to maybe learn how to get around the immune system in one of these people. And the other one has to do with uh, maybe using convalescent plasma. We're using those treatments as part of putting antibodies into people, but also one of these things where, you know, it's sensing these antibodies. So it's learning how to get around those things. When I talk to scientists about this, the way they, they put it to me is like rare things can start to happen when the pandemic has raged on for such a long time. So, you know, you mentioned an immunocompromised person. And so there are some people that when they get infected, like their immune systems aren't as strong as others and, and they can put up a little bit of a fight, but not the complete fight. And what that leads to in that person is that they end up living with the virus for a really long time. So in the normal course of an illness, someone gets sick and infected with the virus and then their system clears them of that virus, you know, hopefully within a matter of like a week or two. But some people can have that virus kind of fighting in their immune system, fighting with their immune system for like weeks and weeks and months and months. And so when I said like a rare thing can happen, like, you know, throughout the pandemic, you know, we've been trying to protect vulnerable people and hopefully immunocompromised people have been mostly um, staying safe. But, you know, a virus can get into an immunocompromised person. It can, the longer it is in that fight with antibodies that are kind of hurting it, but, you know, not completely eliminating it, the more chances it has to mutate and change within any individual body, the more chances it has to learn how to completely thwart or more, or not completely, but thwart a little bit more of that immune response. So like an immunocompromised person is kind of like a little bit of, um, of a, of a, stage for evolution to happen because yeah. a person can be infected for such a long time. Again, that's like really rare. Like a lot of <laughs> things have to happen. That person, that person would also have to pass it on to somebody else. So, you know, after it's yeah. been kind of working in there, I have a friend who had a kidney transplant and he's basically been on lockdown for about a year for fear of contracting COVID-19 and all. So luckily he hasn't, but you know, that's always been a worry. And then, you know, how do you treat it if he does come down with it? So a lot of this has to do these variants. We find out about them by doing this uh, genetic sequencing of the virus. And with coronavirus specifically, it hadn't really been done that much. I know with the flu, they've been doing it for a long time. But that's why a lot of experts are pushing for these things to be looked into more and, and constantly sequence these genomes so that we know when something is popping up so we can then attack it. And we're seeing vaccine makers on the other side. 
Moderna saying we need a booster shot. We might tweak yeah. the vaccine to deal with these variants as they pop up. You kind of need two things there. Like, yes, you need greater surveillance of the viral genetics. And the U.S. does lag on this compared to other countries that are really good at it, like the U.K. But you need to match that data with what's happening in the real world. Like I said, variants can pop up all the time and sometimes they're just meaningless. Sometimes like, you know, a virus can have random genetic changes that don't really make it any more dangerous. So what you really need is like a really careful way to study this. So if there is a new variant, you can ask a question like, oh, is this new variant associated with a larger and larger proportion of cases? You can ask a question, oh, is this new variant associated with a more severe disease course or reinfections? Is it more associated with infecting people who had already been infected with the virus? And, and so, yeah, the surveillance is one part of it, but it's also just in general, like we need really good data. We need to understand the, how the pandemic is progressing across the country. Yeah, and that's exactly what's going on with these. You know, we understand the UK variant a little bit more than we do the one from South Africa and Brazil, and we're constantly be hearing about these as they start to possibly take hold. Uh, you know, as I said, the South African variant has just been detected in South Carolina, so we'll see how much that one has a chance to spread. Brian Resnick, senior science reporter at Vox, thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Finally for this week, Childhood obesity is an ongoing problem that has only been made worse by the pandemic. The huge disruptions to the regular school year has impacted the amount of movement school kids are engaging in, as well as their diets, and it could have a lasting effect on their health. Kids tend to gain weight over summer when there is no school, and for many, the pandemic has been similar to a 10-month summer break. Furthermore, some of the most nutritious meals many kids were eating were in school settings. For more on this, we'll speak to Sam Block staff writer at the counter. You mentioned the childhood obesity crisis was a problem before the pandemic. According to the most recent data that the federal government has, a little over 19% of school-aged children are obese, and there are some predictions that that will rise, the extent to which is not known yet. But I spoke with a researcher who studies summer weight gain. He looks into what happens when kids are out of school, and he figured that if kids were out of school for five months this year, the national obesity rate would rise by another 4%. So that's just five months of typical out-of-school activity, and that's related mostly to uh, poor diet because kids aren't getting the healthy, nutritious foods that they normally eat during the school year, and also, surprisingly, sedentary activity. Right. I think a lot of people tend to think of summer as a time when we're running around at the beach or playing sports, but kids actually spend more time in front of screens when they're out of school. So between the inferior diet and the sedentary activity, the summer has a lot of similarities to the pandemic. And again, this prediction that the obesity rate is going up 4%, it's just a prediction. No one really knows what's going to happen, but that's just for five months out of school. We've now been out of school for 10 months, and we have these extenuating circumstances like um, rising food insecurity and poverty. So pediatricians, public health experts, even some dietitians I spoke to for my story are afraid that this could get really bad. Some of them had said it's kind of like a 10-month-long summer in effect just because of the way of the shutdowns and how all the disruptions to normal school life have gone for children. Start me off with some of the pediatricians and dietitians you've talked to and tell me about what they're seeing in their patients. 
So I spoke to pediatricians in the Bay Area. Uh, I spoke to one in Portland. I spoke to one in Minneapolis. Their stories were very similar. They have patients who are coming in who are, you know, as young as, say, five, six, seven years old, who used to be in the 25th percentile for their body mass index. So that's a way of gauging your relative height and weight. And they went from the 25th percentile to, in a matter of months, the 75th percentile. Now, being in the 75th percentile isn't itself a problem, but when you gain that much weight over such a short period of time, that worries them. That's one pediatrician. Another one told me they had patients who were going into the 85th percentile where you're clinically overweight, into the 95th percentile where you're clinically obese. Some were telling me they saw kids who were putting on 10 or 20 pounds since the pandemic started in March. I spoke to one who said that she had a patient, an 11-year-old girl, I believe, who put on 40 pounds during wow. the pandemic. As kids are growing, they should be gaining weight. But when you're gaining that much weight so quickly, pediatricians worry that that, that could have adverse health effects and that they're not going to lose that weight as they get older. We've been hearing about coverage about this throughout the pandemic, the quarantine 15, you know, people kind of uh, jokingly giving it that name, you know, but if that's happening with normal adults, people who can take care of themselves, et cetera, et cetera, it's also happening to our children and it's diet is part of that. And this is kind of where a lot of school lunch programs really come into focus and how important it is both on, you know, kids actually getting meals, but also the nutritional part of it. I think this is what drew me to the story, was just hearing from people who were concerned, not so much about, quote unquote, empty bellies, but the quality of the food that kids were eating. In America, starvation usually isn't the consequence of poverty, it's obesity. And part of the reason why people are so concerned about kids missing school meals is that for, I think, 22 million school children who live near the poverty line, School lunch is actually some of the healthiest food that they can get. Now, you and I, we probably grew up at a time when school lunch wasn't so healthy. We're probably thinking about sloppy joes and, you know, fatty. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. But, but that changed during the Obama administration. And at the time, you know, I think there were a lot of jokes, a lot of thanks to Michelle Obama about school food that looked pretty unappetizing. Yeah, you're but right. But the fact is... These school lunch changes have impacted child health for the better. Kids who eat school lunch have to eat a certain amount of fruit every day, a range of vegetables from leafy greens to legumes. They have to eat breads, pastas, muffins, and other grains that are made with at least 50% whole grain flour, uh, which is richer in dietary fiber, so it helps the body. um, It helps keep down body weight. School lunches also had to cut back on saturated fats and conform to age-specific limits on calories and sodium. That's part of an effort to drive down hypertension in teenagers. And again, all of these changes, the evidence is suggesting that this has impacted child health for the better. Kids who eat school meals every day consume more fruits and vegetables, fewer fats and sugars, they have better diets, lower weight, lower rates of unhealthy weight gain. And as an epidemiologist told me, it's not just that school lunch is healthier than it used to be, it's healthier than a bag lunch brought from home. And now enter the pandemic, remote learning, you know, how do you even feed kids that are not going to school. And on the other side of things, cafeteria workers and whatnot, they're not actually cooking a lot of these meals anymore because of the way these rules have changed. So now they're doing a lot of prepackaged, processed foods, which could be worse for these diets. And it's important to remember that the cafeteria workers who have been putting together these meals for kids who aren't even in classrooms a lot of the time, they deserve a lot of credit and they deserve a lot of praise for being on the front lines to help these children. That said, 
there are some very real changes to the way they're able to put together these meals. You know, staffing is down. There were a lot of rules initially that were about the safety of even cooking in the first place. It was thought that, you know, packaged meals wrapped in plastic were going to be safer to transmit and safer to distribute. And as a result of a lot of these federal waivers that have just made it easier for cafeteria staff to put bag lunches together, to go on routes and delivering meals, you don't have the hot, nutritious, scratch-cooked meals that kids normally have in the cafeteria. You don't have the salad bars, which a few dietitians told me made them really sad. You know, that for years they'd spent time working on kids, kind of training and convincing them to get into leafy greens and legumes and vegetables they wouldn't normally like by giving them the option of going to salad bars. That's all gone now. You have a lot of frozen foods. You have a lot of shelf-stable foods, processed foods, frozen burritos, salty snacks, chips, fruit juice, vegetable juice, things that aren't bad per se, but if that's in place of the healthy, nutritious meal that you used to eat, kids are missing out on a lot of nutrients this year. And and again, this change was made to make it easier to feed kids. So what are the challenges going forward? I mean, there's a lot of long-term consequences because of this. Um, you know, what are those consequences and what are health officials, what are schools trying to do to remedy that? The long-term consequences, I think, you know, the dietitians that I spoke to who worked on revamping school meals after the Obama reforms, one long-term consequence might be that kids are going to lose their taste for vegetables and they're just going to sort of revert back to starchy potatoes and, and salty snacks and, and uncrustables and Pop-Tarts. The other is the more serious consequence of childhood obesity, because 67% of kids who are obese at five years old will be obese at 50, and 90% of obese adolescents will remain obese adults. And when you become an obese adult, you have higher risk for conditions like diabetes and hypertension, potentially fatal medical events like heart attacks and strokes. So this all just kind of adds up, and we worry, and when I say we, I mean the public health experts and the epidemiologists I talk to, worry about the long-term health consequences of this, I guess, generation of pandemic kids. In terms of what we can do about that, obesity has so many causes. There's no one silver bullet. Yes, the changes to school meals, and yes, the fact that kids are missing these school meals and eating other food at home uh, is contributing to it. It's not the only thing that's contributing to it, but if we do want to attack and work on the diet piece, I heard over and over again that the main thing that schools have to do is return to these Obama-era standards for for nutrition and for what goes in meals. Your uh, listeners may know that at the very end of his administration, Donald Trump uh, was able to push through rules to roll back, I'm sorry, he pushed through rules that rolled back restrictions on, um, on whole grains and sodium and flavored milk. People want those all to return. They want meals to be healthier again. Um, and when kids do return to school, I kept hearing from people, it's going to be more important than ever to realize that school is a place of learning, but it's also a place where bodies grow and we need to recenter and think about kids' health as part of what, what they gain and what they, and what they lose when they're out of school. Sam Block, staff writer at The Counter. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs>